This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening, you're listening to 3RRR. This is Plato's Cave, a film criticism show that goes out at you every Monday night at 7pm. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined by my regular co-hosts, Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. And we're also very happy to once again have our guest host, Alexandra Heller Nicholas in the studio with us. Good evening to you all. Good evening. Good evening. Hi. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> Thank you for coming back. We we weren't weren't too sure whether you'd be up for it again for a second week. You knew. Don't play, don't play with me. I'm trying to create a bit of drama and human interest here. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Very good to have you all here with us tonight. Now on tonight's show, we've got quite an eclectic trio of films to be discussed tonight in the cave. All three are films by very distinctive and, let's say, important filmmakers, and all three films are quite long. We're going to start with the three-hour-long National Gallery. This is the latest film by renowned documentarian Frederick Weissman, who, for this film, takes us inside the Art Museum in Trafalgar Square, central London, of the same name. Then, at almost two and a half hours long, we'll try not to inhale as we wrap our heads around the psychedelic film noir inherent vice, the latest film by Paul Thomas Anderson. And finally, we're going to look at a new uh, DVD release, a film titled Why Don't You Play in Hell by maverick Japanese director Sion Sono. Uh, when we look at that, we'll have some satirical and blood-splattered fun, where a team of underground filmmakers cross paths with feuding Yakuza gangs. But before we get to that excess, let's look at the very proper National Gallery. It is very proper, even quite plummy at times. Uh, Frederick Wiseman, uh, 85 years of age now, but uh, doesn't seem to be slowing down any. This is his latest in his very long line of observational documentaries. Uh, he himself has steered away from the term direct cinema, which was bandied about for this sort of documentary around the time that he started making films, which uh, goes back to 1967 with his first film as director, Titicut Follies, which is still one of the most harrowing documentaries you could ever wish to see or avoid. And because um, it is extraordinary. Uh, National Gallery is a very different sort of institution to the uh, insane asylum that Titicut Follies profiles, but uh, like that film, uh, this, and much like the rest of his oeuvre, it's a study of an institution and how it operates from the most mundane detail to the, the loftiest. Uh, and soon we get plenty of loftiness here at the National Gallery of in London. Beginning with an establishing shot, uh, the exterior of the gallery, by degrees we enter, there are rooms, um, there are rooms full of priceless antiquities uh, in, by way of paintings galore, um, and something we're going to come to in a moment is uh, the frames within the frames, um, because this film uh, actually rather more than, I don't know whether it intended to as much, but gives plenty of pause for thought with respect to cinema's relation to other art forms, in particular painting, but we'll come to that again in a moment. Uh, but yes, the, the next thing we see, in fact, is just somebody vacuuming, just so that we, we are flagged from the outset that this film will explore the, just the very most mundane details, uh, as well as then we see the public enter, and there's a whole lovely sequence of folks looking at art, cutting to the piece of art being looked at and back and forth. And uh, true to Wiseman's general um, aesthetic, just medium shots are generally the order of the day. 
with fairly minimal camera movement actually, but a bit of panning around the galleries and sometimes just to follow the conversation. But in fact, lots of the conversation, this is more in the form of monologues as people lecture and wax knowledgeable, sometimes to audiences within galleries, sometimes in a lecture theatre. But also we, we are privy to the, the very high up folk at uh, the National Gallery debating things about uh, marketing, uh, about how to keep their gallery relevant, how to uh, make sure that all of their extraordinary collection of masterpieces uh, remain relevant to people in the 21st century. Uh, and just uh, over the course of a very leisurely three hours, we, there's probably not many stones unturned, uh, so to speak. Um, but what I'll come back to is just a, well, actually, there's a couple of things that we love talking about on the show. One being that of authenticity, and uh, for me, one of the most fascinating things in this film are all the considerations of uh, authenticity, especially with respect to restorations of um, masterpieces. Uh, I, I found this all very fascinating. Not least a, a sequence in which we get to see a famous Rembrandt paintings uh, x-rayed and flipped 90 degrees to show a previous version of that same painting lying beneath just extraordinary stuff um, not the sort of thing you'd be privy to outside of this documentary terribly easily I wouldn't think um, and really interesting explanations of um, the context with, within which some of these uh, pictures profiled in the film were, were originally meant to have been seen quite far removed from the gallery environment that they are, they now hang in. Uh, religiosity was a major factor in their construction and commission, typically, uh, for the medieval-era paintings. And it's fascinating um, hearing tell that a certain picture was especially meant to be activated, you could say, by being viewed in a church environment uh, by flickering light, which just has so many resonances with the cinema for me. I think that's really, really interesting. Um, and there, and too, something of the, the transcendental nature of art was supposed to be communicated. Um, to much like for all of us here at this table, I think cinema is our temple, you could say. Um, other things I'm just going to throw in there at you guys, because I found so much food for thought in this film. Uh, someone, one of the... Uh, folks talking at some point talks about how paintings change and how every time you look at them um, they change again and there's just a whole lot of Roland Barthes sort of uh, uh, material there that I'm sure one of at least of you guys is going to want to jump in on just just that whole idea that you never see well we never see a film the same way twice we always bring our own personal baggage to any artwork we view whether it's film or painting and the last thing I'll throw in just for the moment, because uh, this might be almost too much already, but I was just fascinated by discussions within this film about painting's relationship with time. And, um, you know, one person briefly, explicitly mentions parallels uh, between these quite, you'd think, different art forms, because surely paintings can only ever capture a moment in time and be absorbed almost in an instant. Maybe a few instances you stare at it, but then you move on, whereas, of course, cinema is a very uh, time-based medium. But I found it very fascinating hearing tell uh, folks talking about their... Uh, their thoughts of what was going through artists' minds when they were trying to paint ephemeral objects and capture them for eternity, which is something that cinema, of course, actually does with the photographic indexical image. Uh, and then also the challenge, though, also of trying to portray time within a painting, trying to develop a narrative so that there might be multiple events happening, you'd think, simultaneously because it's a flat surface and you can't have it play over time. It's not a comic strip, it's a single image, but that uh, many painters were up to the task nonetheless. Yeah, wow, you've scratched the surface of what is a really comprehensive film. There's so much in, in this film to talk about, and not just because it's a three-hour documentary. Look, I'm a big fan of Wiseman, unashamedly, and, um, and this is no different. And look, even though I, probably into the third hour, I, I started to feel the weariness coming on, not because of, of what Wiseman was doing, 
doing or because of the subject matter, but because this film is so dense. And I'm one of these annoying people that when I go to art galleries, I tend not to rush through rooms. I tend to be one of these people who likes to stop and stare and kind of take them in, take the images in and, and then follow the ra- random tours around and get all the info. But then I feel that kind of exhaustion, the, the sort of the info dump come down afterwards. And this felt like that you know in a sense i felt like i'd been sitting in the national gallery for three years across three of their key major exhibits going behind the scenes with the marketing folk watching all the people watching the paintings watching the paintings watching the people but for me one of the key things that stood out um, one of the overarching themes that i think wiseman's suggesting or at least opening up to the audience is the way in which we uh, engage with art and not and as you said cerise not just paintings because this film is it foregrounds poetry at one point there's a, a wonderful dance sequence and we know that Wiseman has a, a an interest in dance through films like La Dance uh, also in terms of cinema I mean we get to see the cinematic apparatus filming various people within the, um, the, the artistic context being interviewed discussing Leonardo da Vinci's works and so on so he's constantly showing the kind of the artistic apparatus back to the audience and I found that really fascinating and I guess one of the things that I also just wanted to flag uh, for discussion because I think there's a tendency for people and this is a general sort of observation but when we come to these types of documentary that they're just a series of random images put together over say in this case a three hour duration and I think that's a, a mistake I think that's a misstep to go into a, a film like this. I think there's a clear um, intention in terms of the way in which he's organising these images. And just a couple of key examples where we start to see him toying with the, I guess, the um, the relationship of images and, and editing. Early on, when we're in that marketing uh, sequence, when the people behind the scenes are talking about how to engage the community, it's all about how does art, what's art's relevance in terms of people. The very next scene is a scene in which we have someone from the art gallery running a workshop for blind people and, and engaging with an art. That's a clear connection that he's creating through that juxtaposition of those scenes and sequences. So we see that on a grand scale, but also on a micro scale. When we when he cuts these montage sequences, close-ups of these gorgeous paintings and gorgeous sort of self-portraits to the people watching them. He's creating a look on the theme of looking and, and the paintings looking back at us, which I loved. Uh, curiously, apparently Weissman doesn't like being referred to as an observational documentarian. He doesn't like being called a chronicler of institutions either. <laughs> he doesn't like being referred to as anthropological. <laughs> he, uh, he doesn't like being referred to. He doesn't like anything. He doesn't like anything. He's well, a grumpy puss. <laughs> well, I think he's a, he's a deeply passionate man who, who makes these films and I, look, all, all those expressions are ones I've certainly used over the years to describe him as well. It's interesting reading a bit more about him and having seen a few more films now. He is creating a narrative. There is meaning between his images. It's why his films work and similar films don't work so much. I remember seeing a, a French documentary a couple of years ago all about the National French Broadcasting Service, which did feel more like a random series of snapshots to give you the impression of how this station worked over 24 hours, and it wasn't nearly as engaging or as rigorous in its content as what Frederick Weissman does. Uh, but look, in, in this film I think he, he really is exploring, uh, yeah, as you both have articulated really beautifully, the, these themes of um, how art connects to audiences. Uh, you know, I, I love the fact that we have so many scenes where they're delivering the art to different people, whether it's through documentaries being made or tour gallery um, audio and video excerpts being recorded. We see them, we see curators speaking to children and to school groups. We have people talking about how different perspectives affects the way we look at painting. I love that they included the scene where he looked at how 
artwork was lit because that has always fascinated me. When is the conversation that happens in art galleries about how we use lighting and why the shadows fall the way they do? I love the fact that the first art appreciation class we see, Josh, as you mentioned, is that one with um, vision-impaired people. It just shows us how art connects with people in so many more ways than I think we ever really acknowledge or, or realise at first. You know, people actually touching these tactile representations of paintings to sort of feel the depth and the height of the artwork to their fingers. It, it's a gorgeous sequence. I loved, and maybe this says something about my background back in the dark, evil days when I worked in marketing, I love the scene where they're talking about whether they should tie the gallery into a big marathon that's going to end at the gallery? Do they use the facade of the gallery to project some kind of advertising for the gallery to connect with the race? And it starts off this brilliant conversation about about the, the, the need to be commercially viable but the need to maintain their own integrity. This is a really interesting angle uh, for me in, in National Gallery, um, not, not merely about how... Wiseman reflects on an art gallery as an institution, but how it fits into his broader work on institutions. Um, I came to this film very much almost out of a sense of obligation to the weightiness of his entire filmography. I mean, he's such an important, such an important figure. If you look at just the legal fallout from something like Titicut Follies, uh, you can see why he's such an important uh, filmmaker. Um, but the thing with Wiseman is that once you're hooked, you're hooked. Three hours, 30 hours, once you're in, you're in. What I found really fascinating with this film is not just this um, micro-focus on the inner workings of the gallery, um, but it's on the tension between highbrow, the kind of highbrow elitist aspirations of capital G gallery culture on one hand, with the desire to make art and ideas and the very public space itself accessible on the other. And this is where... For me, this is where National Gallery got kind of a bit more punk rock because it really teases out what, for another filmmaker, I suspect would be a bit too ambitious. He's asking questions about what does art mean? And for me, what was even more importantly, even more important, is who is it for? Is it for the people who work in the gallery or is it the people that they're perhaps a little uncomfortable coming to the gallery? There's this, do they walk the walk? You know, they talk the talk, but are they walking the walk? Um, There's a kind of brutality, I think, in his reflection on this. The stuff I found really interesting was the relationship between the gallery as a contemporary brand, Thomas, that you were kind of touching on, Um, and also how that in itself reflects back on the kind of mini art history lectures that we see glimpses of all the way through the documentary. Um, Anyway, it touches on ideas of patronage, elitism, wealth and class, not just in terms of the paintings and, uh, and the history around those paintings, but in terms of the gallery itself and the people who work in the gallery. And you see that when you've got big marketing guys on one hand and then mm-hmm. the guy with the vacuum cleaner on the other. It's, mm. I mean, I'm not saying it's Ken Loach, but there is a kind of British class consciousness to this film that, that I found in a way just as brutal and just as interesting as, as something a bit more overt as Titty Cat Follies. The, the one scene that, that really struck me in that class context, and it reminded me instantly of Boxing Gym, one of my favourite films of his. And it was, it's a scene where we, we see one of those tour guides, and it appears to be maybe a school group or some kind of community group who are, who are clearly racially diverse. So this is a, and, and potentially, and maybe this is reading too much into it, but based on the clothes and, and so on, maybe a bit of lower class kind of standing. And she says, now I have to remind you, I need to say this, that 
galleries, institutions like this, and she names a few other ones, other British institutions, were basically formed on the on, on money that was earned through slavery. And I thought that was such an interesting thing for, for not only for Wiseman to put in the film and, and focus on, but that that was this guide bringing that to them and that was the connection and, and, and raising that at the very front before she'd even start to talk about the work itself. And and that, that scene just kind of resonated with so many of the other things that we'd seen before it and then inevitably after that, that point. It was such a kind of key determining moment in terms of what is the relevance of this gallery and its institution and its past and, and beyond that its, its future for the kind of the broader society and community that, that it's kind of situated within. Yeah, that, that was a real key moment for me. Yep, well, like that's the cinema and uh, painting alike. It's all about framing and frameworks and that's what this whole film is concerned with, uh, making sense of art, finding frameworks within which to explain it and, uh, and but also to interpret it and interpret it anew and keep it alive. Uh, and similarly, just as uh, Wiseman frequently zoomed... Oh, it doesn't actually never, does, never zooms, but frequently... Um, <laughs> none of that Jump crazy. Cut. No, fre- frequently provides details rather than the whole paintings too. Uh, interesting acts of framing in their own right. So there's just... Uh, it, it's an exquisite film. Uh, I've been to the National Gallery. It made me realise I saw some things there and I didn't see a whole lot of things as well. And... Uh, uh, a, a visit in person again would be very highly desirable. That's the gallery experience, though, and look, that's somewhat the experience of watching this film as well, and several of his other films, partly because of their length. I I felt I had this incredible freedom to allow my mind to wander during the film, to sort of drift in and out of what I was watching, and I didn't feel like I was being a bad viewer for doing that because I think his films do invite you to sort of reflect and go to your own place and come back to it. It's sort of it, it's almost a pity that. For me, anyway, I, I saw this film as a film I have to watch for Plato's Cave as opposed to I'm going to take off the entire morning just to kind of float through the National Gallery and, and the sort of the, the, the brilliant editing and curation of images that is uh, Fred Weissman. I think it is, it's quite a different um, viewing experience and one that is enormously welcome. Three, triple, ah. Oh. Vice. This is the latest film from director Paul Thomas Anderson, the first film since The Master, which was, I think, three years ago now, from memory. Uh, it's based on the Thomas Pynchon novel, a novel which I'm afraid I haven't read but is supposedly unfilmable up until now. How to describe Inherent Vice? Um, perhaps if Raymond Chandler, Cheech and Chong and Hunter S. Thompson gave birth to a detective story set in Zabriskie Point era LA, you'd <laughs> still be not quite there. Um, it is a detective film of sorts through a sort of a drug-fueled haze in 70s LA with a stoner-type detective by the name of Larry Doc Sportello, played by Joaquin Phoenix. The film kicks off when his ex-flame arrives and gives him a rather convoluted plot about a wealthy sort of um, property magnate who she is seeing and a plot that involves his wife and her lover to incarcerate him in a mental institution and this is just the beginning of what turns out to be three three cases that he every time he tries to investigate one case he seems to pick up another case and I think that's part of it. The film is very much I think deliberately incoherent or maybe I'm just a poor uh, audience viewer. I saw this film 
man, almost two months ago. And I have to say, I wished I'd re- had time to rewatch it this week because I feel like it's a film, a bit like The Master, that probably demands reviewings. But I found it fascinating the way in which it, it took the detective genre, which typically has clear-cut three-act structure, cause and effect narrative, where the protagonist typically influences the events and there's typically resolution. This film, I think, is a deliberate attempt to undo many of those tropes, particularly the idea of, of having a central figure who has any bearing upon the relationships or the events of the film as they uh, as they evolve and as they resolve. And I think that's something really fascinating. I think it taps into an approach that Anderson's been working on for probably his last two, maybe three films, and that is a, a not a radical departure from t- traditional cinematic structure, but at least a toying with it. Toying with it in terms of maybe refusing certain aspects of audience catharsis, playing with, with structure where we have quite elongated conversational scenes, and I think that's a, a hallmark that is there in some of the earlier works, and I, and I was lucky enough to, this week to see both Hard Eight and Boogie Nights at Cinematheque, both films which I think stand up particularly well. But I, I think my appreciation of this film, even on the, the one viewing, is through the lens of uh, Anderson doing something a little bit different but still being allowed to do it, and I think that's where I got a, a real sense of enjoyment on, on a first viewing of this film. I, I had a curious journey with, with this film. I've met a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson zealots, quite aggressive zealots in the, in the, in the past. You're safe um, here. <laughs> I won't get zealot on your ass. <laughs> um, who, unfortunately, I think have rendered me a little bit prickly, perhaps to, you know, perhaps meaning that I've been a little bit harder on him than, than I should have been and perhaps I've missed out on some really great films. Um, so, to be honest, I came to this movie a lot more excited about Pynchon. That was the sort of draw card to me and it's like, oh, I wonder, you know, that was the, that was the interesting um, element that I've initially saw in this. That being said, uh, Inherent Vice just blew me away and, and I wasn't expecting that at all and it, it kind of won my heart in a number of ways. Um, first of all, obviously a lot's been made uh, and a lot of writing about this film, about it being a love letter to films like Altman's Long Goodbye, Hawks's Big Sleep. But I found a, that a lot of the film references that really appealed to me were actually a lot more textural, not even formal, but kind of in the, in the meat of it, you know... Um, Things I, I heard this film described as having a bong water aesthetic, which I just... It's like it's ingrained in the film. Oh, that's a great It's term. just really sexy yeah. and just so perfect. On the other hand, though, there's also a lot of train spotter stuff, which in other circumstances I might find pretentious. But these were so jacked into my own personal pre- taste preferences that I just fell for it, hook, line and sinker. There's a... Uh, and they name drop uh, cinematographer Jimmy Wong Howe at one point, and I had a, I almost had a nosebleed. I was so excited. How um, he lends films um, some of my favourite movies: Sweet Smell of Success, Bell Book and Candle, The Heart Is a Lonely Hunter, John Frankenheimer's Seconds from 1966. Like, yeah, why wouldn't you chuck a Jimmy Wong Howe reference into your film? What was the reference? Uh, it's Do you like the lighting? Jimmy Wong Howe did it. We had Jimmy Wong Howe oh, do it. It's amazing. I yeah, it's that. so Damn, sexy, so random. Wow, and but... if it was anybody else, I probably probably would have rolled my eyes. I'm just like, oh, my God, it's Jimmy Wong Howe. You know your cinematographer. Cinematographer fangirl meltdown there. (laughs) Other things that I really liked about this film, I really didn't expect it to be a really moving breakup film, um, which is really the angle that it worked for me the most. You know, detective genre stuff aside, comedy aside, for me it was at its most powerful when it was at its darkest. And I think it does get really dark on on that front. Um, and so I really have to say something about the casting. 
Um, <laughs> a lot's being made about a lot of the, the kind of main character casting. But for me, it was some of the smaller roles. Eric Roberts deserves a nod. Um, I love Josh Brolin in this film, and that's not something I ever thought I'd be saying. I think he carries the film in large part. But I really, really, really lost my mind when Martin Donovan turned up. I'm um, mm. Hal Hartley films for people of my generation were really formative. I... I had a bit of a moment when and and you know it's a very small role for a very small cameo for martin donovan but i think it's a really climactic one in the film and that was it i was done it's like i love this film yeah can i, can I continue the gush fest i i did adore this as film as someone who loves film noir and although the, the tech the detective film does have that traditional cause-effect narrative structure for a lot of its history. Some of my favourite film noirs have been the crazy, convoluted ones where you can't, for the life of you, work out really what's going on. The Big Sleep, you've mentioned Alex, is one of those. Uh, the Long Goodbye is another one. Um, Kiss Me Deadly, I think, the 1955 film, who Anderson has actually cited as a direct reference, is another one of those films. I, I love... Being in the moment of each scene of this film, I, I love the kind of thematic cohesion. I really wasn't really worried about the narrative. I wasn't investigate. I wasn't. I wasn't invested at all in making sense of it all. And well, I haven't watched the film twice now, and I have read the book. The, the book, I had no idea what was going on. I, when I found out you're not meant to be able to follow the book because pensions like that, I actually found it a great relief, and I started to enjoy it more. Um, it does all fit together, but it, yeah, it, it's not really important. Um, I, I love the fact that the color palette seemed to just be these primary comic book colours. It sort of did feel like a, a bit of a comic book film in, in, in many ways. And there is a sort of melancholy to this film, absolutely. There, there is something... I think that's the Hunter S. Thompson kind of thing. It's just like, this is the death of an era. This is... The, 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 the hippie counterculture dream has been exposed to be a bit of a fake, and it's, and it's sort of dying off. And as well as being a very sad breakup film, what I found really moving was the relationship between Doc and, um, and Bigfoot, so the, the Josh Brolin character, who was sort of played... It reminded me of some of those classic John Woo um, detective criminal films of sort of the late 80s, early 90s, where you had these two men who in a different world would be best friends, but because they're on opposite side of the law, they have to fight. It reminded me of that because these guys have this bizarre kind of love-hate relationship with each other. It's sort of almost symbiotic. They, they, they kind of need each other. They see aspects of each other in themselves, yet they, they, they sort of have to go through the motion constantly of being cruel and mean to each other. So I sort of saw it also as a sad film about two men who should be able to hang out and be best buddies, but they're, they're, they're kept apart by the system. So yeah, I, I adore this film as well. Well, all of your enthusiasm notwithstanding, uh, <laughs> I found this film quite um, infuriating and uh, massively overlong and deadening ultimately, and probably for the reasons that you enjoyed it, but uh, its absolute inconsequentiality just... Uh, uh, ended up uh, well, once I realised that nothing actually mattered I, I lost interest I had no emotional attachment to anyone in the film I realised everyone in the film cast wise was having a really fantastic time and I enjoyed their performances you could say but in a very distanced way um, I, I just couldn't latch on to anybody or care and it, it did become a bit train spotterish for me you know, I did actually get a bit of a kick too though out of seeing Martin Donovan that was nice but <laughs> you uh, can't yeah, fight that you, yeah you, you know, I can't but um, oh yeah I just found it it's like going to a party everyone's stoned but you're not and you know just it's alienating and um i just yeah i, I wait were I, you not were you not stoned when you watched this <laughs> no, no, come on no i wasn't maybe next time there's a solution to be a next yeah. well yeah I, I thought that was probably improper during the the media oh, i thought um, everyone was giving <laughs> out hemp flavored ice cream <laughs> choc tops didn't, didn't anyone else get those no, i no. i i 
I've let the cave down. <laughs> yeah, so look, um, I'm, I'm going to be, uh, I'm surprised actually, the sole dissenting voice on this, but no, I, I just, uh, it bored me. Oh, that's real. Yeah, well, hmm, that's a shame. Um, <laughs> moving right along. Sorry, I don't know how to respond to that. It did make, if I'm going to bring the level down, it did make me crave pizza like no other film in the history of cinema. The, the point you just raised, Thomas, about the, uh, you both raised, um, about the end of the year, I think, really just struck me, and I just started thinking back. This is a trait of Anderson's films. I, having just watched Boogie Nights, it, it is that the 70s porn, the kind of halcyon days of the porn industry, falls into the 80s, and the second half of that film is the massive, massive down of mm, you know, yeah. film dying out and in, in comes videotape and everyone's lives go to hell. The same thing with the, I guess, the oil industry and there will be blood. Like the rise and fall of the kind of the oil empire as, as you know, surrounding that kind of authority figure. Um, you could even make a case for the master in that post-World War II masculinity and that kind of the, the post-World War II high kind of collapses in that kind of crisis that follows. He has a real, a real fascination with authority figures. I think it's very prominent in his films. Yeah, yeah. he's spoken about that. I mean, Magnolia apparently is about his father dying. And this is something that's mm. again here in term, but almost played for laughs. Like the the authority figures and the paternal figures are kind of jokes here, and I think that's what makes it almost different in some ways, but very playful. I, 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 we probably should stress that I found this film remarkably funny. Like, I was laughing consistently throughout it. And part of it is, and I, I have never seen him pull off humour like this, Josh Brolin nails the Amazing. kind of straight man role. He, the, the banana, the chocolate banana, can I say that? Yeah. Is, that, cho- is that a spoiler? Because I, I love me a dick joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> Again, bringing the tone of the cave down. Oh, it's there in the film. I, I crave <laughs> chocolate bananas after seeing this film. I wanted to eat them like Josh Brolin Dirty ate them. Boy. When there's a place near where I work that was selling them, but they're not at the moment, and I feel so, like that, that they've missed an opportunity there. <laughs> I love that um, Cerise is there's actually the dis- <laughs> Cerise is the dissenting voice against Paul Thomas Anderson, where it's usually me. I, w- what you're saying is usually me in conversations about Paul Thomas Anderson films, and I'm, I'm having a an appropriate little kind of trip over here that I'm actually on the team of the other people. It's very strange for me. Have you been a fan of, of his other films, Cerise? Look, I've actually got a few gaps in my viewing with some of his other films, but look, Boogie Nights, I absolutely adored when I saw it, and I, I'm, I'm annoyed I missed the opportunity to see it again just the other week on the big screen, but um, no, look, I, I didn't go into this with any particular preconceptions, except for knowing, of course, that it was an adaptation of Thomas Pynchon's novel, <laughs> the first time he'd been adapted for film. I've uh, tried Gravity's Rainbow twice and failed, fallen you know, about 100 pages in, whereas The Crying of Lot 49 I found quite digestible, a short work of his... And um, I'm wagering that Inherent Vice is probably not one of his shorter novels because it's just so convoluted. And that was my Gravity's Rainbow experience too. It's just that it's just in so labyrinthine and so full of its own postmodernism that uh, it just disappears so far up its own ass that it's uh, indigestible. And uh, you know, but that's maybe just me. Inherent Vice. We one, one dissenting voice, but otherwise a lot of enthusiasm. I, I look. I, I do suspect though. This is one of those films I, I really did love it. I was in the moment the whole film really enjoying it but I, I totally get that this is a kind of film a lot of people will not like because it, it is so kind of yeah muddled and, and seems to be meaningless but but I saw some meaning in there you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in Melbourne Australia 
You're listening to Plato's Cave with Thomas Cerise, Josh and Alex. We're going, to take, we're going to take a look now at a recent DVD release, a film with the rather brilliant title, Why Don't You Play in Hell? I'm just going to quickly say I have seen this film. I absolutely loved it, but it was late, late night at MIF last year and I can't remember really a thing about it other than I really loved it. So I'm going to hand over to Alex now to, to tell us what's going on because I haven't got a clue. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly in my circle of friends, um, Why Don't You Play in Hell was probably one of the highlights of MIF last year. But don't say you weren't warned. Um, this film, and I think much like a lot of Sono's work, uh, it's pretty off its head, even by his standards. Um, his name will already be familiar if you have a love of weird, fun Japanese cinema. I guess most famous is his upskirting masterpiece, Love Exposure, from 2008. <laughs> Love that film. His 2010 serial killer film, Cold Fish. Uh, or my favourite, the J-pop conspiracy theory, theory horror melodrama, 2001 Suicide Club. Huh, words I don't put together too often. <laughs> now, like these films before it, Why Don't You Play in Hell is a magpie's nest of joy, colour and a total lack of logic. The story is seriously meta and loosely follows a group of guerrilla filmmakers called, and I'm not kidding, the Fuck Bombers, <laughs> who find themselves caught up in a Yakuza war. In pursuit of this perfect movie, they decide to film these equally cinema-obsessed rival gangs as they slaughter each other. As one of the Fuck Bombers puts it, they'll fight to the death and will film around it. It's more like John Waters' Cecil B. Demented than Goddard's Contempt. But like the best of Sono's work, its vignettes are its strongest elements. Um, look at this as a series of bite-sized chunks of cinematic awesomeness staple gun together rather than a coherent feature-length whole, and you'll probably get the most out of it. If you can let go of the absence of a strong overriding narrative logic, there's a lot here to love. Slow-motion sword fights to Beethoven's Ode to Joy, a woman shooting a machine gun in one hand and filming with the other, with a camera in the other as she screams, I am the queen of handheld shots. <laughs> and finally, what I would argue is one of the greatest cinematic vomits since George Miller's Witches of Eastwick. Now, I did say this wasn't for everyone. <laughs> oh, well, I watched this just uh, a few hours ago. Um, I'm still reeling a little bit from it. It's uh, This is um, a, a muddled film in a way quite different to... Uh, I mean, I, as you probably may have just gathered, I didn't much enjoy the most recent Paul Thomas Anderson film, whereas this is just a bit of a hoot, because it doesn't take itself remotely seriously. Um, but it is also, uh, like uh, Inherent Vice, full of little tips of hats uh, to cinema forebears, um, not least Bruce Lee, of course. Um, the, the fuck bomber's uh, action hero is... Well, completely modelled on Bruce Lee, in fact. Uh, but there's just so many other bits out of Japanese cinema. In fact, this film is, goes to some pains to assert its Japanese-ness. Even a, a fight sequence, a typical Yakuza gun-fu battle is uh, stopped in its tracks in order to, that everyone might instead wield swords and be a bit more Japanese about slaughtering one another. But so I, I especially picked up the influence of Seijin Suzuki, uh, an absolute brilliant maverick uh, Japanese filmmaker who made some incredible films, uh, some of which featured Yakuza, um, and a whole um, an extraordinary pop art influence in their aesthetic. And that was uh, explicitly um, uh, tipped to uh, in one scene where uh, the walls of uh, one of the, the rooms being fought over just is covered in blood, um, sort of Argento Tenebrae style as well. It's just fantastic. Uh, but just the whole pop artiness of the whole film that really 
does remind me of Suzuki, except perhaps on even stranger drugs, and he may have gobbled it sometime in his uh, still very long life. Yes, Sion Sono, uh, Suicide Club is a remarkable film. Thomas, you and I sat through Love Exposure at many years ago. <laughs> Three hours, <laughs> one sitting here. I think it was, was it even longer than that? It was memory. four hours. Yeah, I think it was four hours. We had lots of caffeine assistance in that. We didn't need it because the film is so we got crazy. <laughs> um, and then I saw Cold Fish, and look, I, there's a few that I've been missing, but Cold Fish I had I, well, I took issue with or I had problems with because of the, the violence against women in it, which I thought was not only gratuitous but occasionally and perhaps more disturbingly played for laughs. And that was that kind of ugh moment. And I, since then, and it's, it's sort of tainted my experience of Sono films going into them, and I actually haven't watched his last two, I guess for fear of that experience again. And I'm sort of glad to say that it's while it's here, it's very minimal and it's, it's certainly not of the register of Cold Fish. And as a result, I had a lot of fun with it. I mean, this is a kind of a joy, and it's a joy for, for film buffs and film critics as much as anything because it's about film and it's sort of very self-reflexive and meta, as, as you mentioned. I've actually almost put it in the same very very loose terms or very broad terms there's a number of films we've seen over the past three or four years that I think have been trying to approach or filmmakers dealing with this idea of the death of film and as in like 35mm 70mm but in a very context that's sort of removed from that and here you have a sort of a very much a Yakuza samurai-esque um, uh, context or genre frame as opposed to something like Hugo and Scorsese's work or The Artist or even Holy Motors, the Karash film. I, you know, I, I think all of those films are dealing with this idea in, in one way or another. I thought it was interesting the way in which Sono approaches that here. And the thing that struck me, I guess, in and through that is that, that wonderful, um, I guess, trend or a wonderful aspect of cinema where you see appropriation and reappropriation, particularly in terms of, like, the Bruce Lee jumpsuit. The, there's a, the end of this film takes place in a... I kind of like a guest house with the traditional framed walls and so on and we see people being stabbed through the kind of the paper walls and being thrown through and there's blood being sprayed everywhere and it reminded me a great deal of perhaps one of my favourite all-time samurai films and that's The Sword of Doom, the 1966 film from Kihachi Okamoto which has a remarkable sequence. I mean the last 10 or 15 minutes is just this one kind of anti-hero samurai killing off hordes and hordes and taking wounds and it's something Tarantino clearly stole from or borrowed from or appropriate for the House of the Tea Leaf sequence at the end of Kill Bill Volume 1. And here you have the yellow jumpsuit, which he's appropriated from Game of Death, is reappropriated back into Japanese cinema. And I, I, I sort of like this collapse. I mean, the film is about film. It's, it's a, obviously an embrace of Yakuza, but it's this wonderful melting pot. And not in a smug, look how clever I'm being, just in, a, in, in the joy of cinema. It's a, clearly a filmmaker speaking to his own experience and love of film and to the audience joy. And I think that came across so strongly in this film. I think it feels to a large degree that there is a kind of reclamation of Japanese cinema going on in this film but in a really in, in Sono's own special little magical weird way um, the I mean it's very much been marketed as a kind of Tarantino-esque kind of film but for me that's that's a bit cut before the horse it's it's actually the other way around and that's sort of taking it back yep. and, and and keeping it still fun and light-hearted but sort of a, a nice gentle um, high-spirited reminder that this was ours to begin with, that, that Tarantino didn't make this stuff magical by cutting and pasting it in with a bunch of other stuff, that it was always fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and, and it's funny in ways that aren't necessarily just sort of traditional genre. Like, the structure of this film, I think, has quite a complex use of flashback and fantasy sequences in ways that I don't think I've seen Sono use before, from, from even from his earlier work here. 
Look, this film also has some very curious things to say about child stardom. Uh, oh, a lot, yeah, of, a lot of what this whole film hinges upon. <laughs> or the very opening is a, a, a cute little uh, girl just singing this bizarre inane toothpaste jingle uh, and she becomes the locus of desire in this film that uh, from whether it's a Yakuza boss or a proud Yakuza father um, and, and her own desire for continued stardom and her mother uh, her desire for her daughter to have made something of it, I mean the mother um, uh, takes a, a one for the team, you could say, and spends a bit of time, quite a bit of time, in a certain location, obsessing over. Again, everyone's actually singing that damn jingle throughout the film. <laughs> it's pretty catchy. I mean, yeah, it is very catchy. Um, so I, I think that's really curious, and I don't think that's a, actually a specifically Japanese um, phenomenon. The child star and and what is expected to become of that child star, and the, the, what people invest in in such people. In fact, I suppose maybe with a little bit less Schadenfreude, I think here in the West we actually like to see our child stars come undone publicly. Um, there, apparently, the hope is more that they might um, excel and possibly do so murderously. Discuss. Yeah, discuss. <laughs> um, just one, one point I wanted to bring up, and you just reminded me of this, Cerise, is, and it involves the, uh, the young girl at the earliest point of this film, is a sequence involving blood and red, and it is just sublimely beautiful where we see a young girl in a room where the entire floor is red and suddenly we realise it's not just a painted red floor, it's being painted with blood and it is an exquisite moment. Which brings me to my, I guess, my one bug there which I couldn't resist throwing in and that is the prevalence of CGI blood in the concluding sequence which for me ruined the experience of, um, of the remake of Zatoichi. I think if you're going to make a samurai film and you're going to pay ode to these other films and you're actually going to use squibs for most of the film when it comes to the bloody climax which for everything else is wonderfully executed uh, I don't know maybe it's just me but the CGI blood it was such a kind of a, a downer it just ha- doesn't have that tangible quality and it looks it looks fake and it takes me out of the excitement of the action but then in that one moment there's a fantasy sequence involving a lot of bloodshed where that actually assumes extremely beautiful psychedelic dimensions so yeah, I mean, and that was fine that was good that, that was, was a nice antidote yeah. that's what he does well I mean yeah. when I said that, that Sono is the master of the vignette to me Suicide Club I think that opening sequence I mean that's his that's his superpower and these beautiful, almost standalone, moving images that you could never, ever forget. That sequence in um, Why Don't You Play in Hell, it reminds me of the Goddard quote, is it, uh, it's not blood, it's red. <laughs> and, and he sort of says that from the outset. This is not blood. This is... This is not blood, it is red, and here is a lot of red. I think that's a lot of Seijun Suzuki's influence there as well, because he, he just loved to paint with whatever it was that he could uh, kind of build a narrative around in order to have it splashed wherever and it the, could be within the frame. Argento as well, yeah. as he was saying. You've been talking about Why Don't You Play in Hell. The, actually, it's not the latest film by Sihon Sono. He's made some since. <laughs> but it's just arrived on DVD in Australia. You've convinced me to re-watch it. It was, it was a lot of fun, that film. Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas, thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Thomas Cordwell. National Gallery is screening at Cinema Nova through Vendetta Films. And actually, I've got a horrible feeling that there's only one more screening of that to go tomorrow at 6.30pm. But, but check, check the listings. I may be wrong about that. Call the cinema. Call, yeah, Lobby them. Demand more screenings. Um, Riot. <laughs> very National Gallery appropriate. Um, Inherent Vice is opening in cinemas this Thursday 
through Roadshow Films. And Why Don't You Play in Hell, which we were just discussing a moment ago, is available on DVD through Man Man Entertainment. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. This has been Plato's Cave. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.